Well, hello, everybody. It's good to be back with you. It's been a while. It's been, I think, like three months, maybe. And I am getting so lazy at doing these. I'm sorry. Um, I'm planting a church right now. I'm having to work really hard on that. But I don't want you to think that I have forgotten about you. And I definitely have not forgotten my love for church history, for history in general. So please don't think I'm forgetting about you. I want to let you know that we are going to have... A Patreon page, a Patreon ability for you to support the podcast, and that'll be coming in coming weeks, and I will let you know about that. Might do a specific podcast to announce that because I would like to start an income stream through this podcast. I'll tell you why. It's not just because I want to roll around with rims and have a crib. No, that's not what it is. What I would love to do is take this podcast to the next level, perhaps doing YouTube videos that correspond with the podcast itself, being able to give out books and things that I use to study for these podcasts to those who are Patreon members. But I am actually learning what in the world that is. So I can bring it to you. So I'm not saying I'm the best, um, most uh, well-versed in technology, but I do think that I that we have enough people listening to this podcast that'd be good to look ahead and see what we can do in the future to make it more accessible, etc. I'm really sorry. My phone actually just um, went off twice, and um, I looked at it to see if it was my wife, and it wasn't. So I will ignore, okay? Well, what I want to do is encourage you to ask questions and send um, um, comments as you listen to these. We still have the email address church.ahistory at gmail.com, church.ahistory at gmail.com. You can go there. You can ask anything. One of the things that I get asked a lot is, what books do you use to research um, what you're talking about? Where do you get that from? How do you kind of formulate that? Well, um, this is kind of how I do it. I read probably three books per um, per podcast, and then I also do some research on the side, meaning I look into books that are not necessarily um, like books I'm going to read all the way, but I'll hear about them, I'll make kind of notes and take stuff out of them. And I like to look at both Christian historians and writers and, and historians that are, not that they're not Christians, I guess, but they're not writing under that banner of a Christian um, publishing or anything like that. Um, so I can get a good idea of what is going on, and I can bring you um, different perspectives. But what I want to do is I want to start getting books out to those of you who have gotten a hold of me through the email or otherwise and said, have you ever heard of a good book for this or a good book for this or a good book for that? So I've got a couple of books here. One I'm super sure that you'll like, and if you're a Christian, you'll really like. Um, and, and if you're not a Christian, I'm sure you will too. But I have I have other um or another book that is not written as a Christian book, but I found it interesting. In fact, I bought this book when I was like 39, 40 years old, and I think it's supposed to be a kid's book, but I went through the whole thing, and it's one of those books where, and I know I'm, I know I'm kind of nerdy or whatever, but but I'll be like watching TV, I don't know what ever happens to you, but I'll be watching TV, and whatever I'm watching, I'm just not into. I have a, um, a table next to a couch, one of the couches that we have at our house, and it just has a, a pile of books, just a pile of books. I know they're an eyesore for probably everybody else in the family, but me. And this is a book I have sitting there. So why am I talking about this so much without telling you the book? So I'll come back to that book. One of the books, all the way back to uh, um, 
uh, actually this is a collection of letters, but it looks like a book, um, is there have been questions all the way back to our Augustine podcast. There's Augustine part one and part two, by far the most listened to podcast uh, that is out in this, uh, um, in church history, in this forum or whatever, um, that I did. We had thousands, and I'm not exaggerating, thousands of people download those two episodes. And there was a question that came up about a relationship between Augustine and a guy named Jerome, which is interesting because in those podcasts, I literally just mentioned Jerome very briefly, but he was a guy that Augustine wrote to when he was young in his ministry. Jerome was a little bit further down the road and he asked questions. And and, and what this is, this is a a collection of the letters between Augustine and Jerome, and they're translated and put together, edited by a guy named Sean Cooey Man. All right, Cooey Man, I kind of like that um, name. I don't know why, but Sean Cooey Man. Um, but Sean Cooey Man edited this, and it is the letters um, between the two of them. It is in a book form. Um, it's not. It's not too bad, or too, like a book. It's like two hundred pages long, um, but how it's broken down is the first half is just these kind of, in, in a timeline, letters between um, Augustine and Jerome. Again, Augustine's young in his ministry, and he's just got all these questions for Jerome. Jerome's older, and you almost get the impression that Jerome is a bit annoyed, like, seriously, dude, seriously, and Augustine is on fire, and he keeps asking these questions, and eventually Jerome and, and Augustine start talking about some really deep, interesting things, like the creation of souls, when our soul is created, when do they come into existence and i won't spoil it some other stuff too so half the book is there just on a timeline communication the other half of it is divided up into topics so the sean editor he kind of takes these big topics and again it's about souls he puts all of those letters together and sometimes they go out of order as far as the timeline but you can see together almost the dialogue sometimes debate sometimes argument that they have so letters between augustine and jerome edited by sean cooey man you can find it on on um Amazon for seriously like eight dollars, so well worth it. Um, it's so annoying that you have you have amazing literature like this. It's like eight bucks, and if you go to buy like a hardback Harry Harry Potter book, it's like thirty five dollars. Not cool, not cool, universe. All right. Well, the second one is this. The second one is called Greek Mythology: The Gods, Goddesses, and Heroes, and it's called the Handbook. So you can kind of see what they're about. Um, the tagline is from Aphrodite to Zeus: A Profile of Who's Who. And Greek mythology, um, and this was compiled and written by a woman named Liv Albert, who is a professor, I believe, at Concordia University in Montreal. This book is extremely, I'm just going to say it, it, it's entertaining. Um, it's written in a way where almost like, <laughs> I hate to say like devotional, but if you're a Christian, you know a devotional, you know kind of what I mean. Um, like you will have, uh, you'll turn a page and when you see it, you'll... Um, You'll, what you'll see is, for example, Hades, and then under Hades, it'll say the god of underworld and wealth, which I, think, I always think that's interesting that both those things are put together in the Greek context. 
and God and King of the Dead. All right, that's Hades, and then it gives an idea of what's his deal, what's he, what's he about, some some nice tidbits of information about him, and then also talks about how you know him. And this is something I think is very very cool. So it talks about who he is, the details of who he is, and then it says how does he show up in modern uh, entertainment culture. Um, and that's really interesting because you look through and you're like, oh, he's been, um, he has been uh, embodied in different films and, and different things. And there's, there's actually characters that aren't explicitly called um, Hades that are, are, are written after the attributes of Hades. So this is a great book. And the other thing that's cool is that it is illustrated. So as you go through and you see all these Greek gods and goddesses, there's a picture, there's a drawing of, of depicting who they are as well. So it is a great, great little book. If you're not into just like reading tons and tons of pages, this is a great book for you. Don't feel bad about getting this book. It may look like it's for kids. Um, it's, it could be, it could be, well, I would say maybe, mm, maybe junior hires and into, into high school. But if you are a full-blown adult, this is also a good book as well. Now, here we are ready to jump into our next um, Church History Podcast, and we're going to talk about Nero, the dreaded Nero, the emperor of the Roman Empire, who many times, if you hear about the persecution of Christians, the awful ways they died, um, your mind goes directly to this name, Nero. All right, so we're going to talk about him. Now, it's a misnomer to think that he has he's the only one that persecuted the Christians, and actually he persecuted them for not as long as some of the other emperors and, and not as violent, but he definitely did, and he is an interesting, interesting character. Um, so I, what I want to do is I want to talk tonight about Nero and the Christians and the persecution that comes under Nero um, to the Christians and why that came about and why that is important to us. And I think that um, one of the things that we have to keep in mind when we do these kind of studies is we have to understand that history is real. And what I mean by that is these types of things we talk about, it's easy to kind of like just gloss over them and say, um, yeah, the terror of Neo, uh, Neo, thinking about the Matrix, I'm sorry, uh, um, Nero on the Christians, it's just kind of like, well, that's something that happened and that was kind of terrible. But with all history, what I like to say, especially church history, and if you're a Christian or not a Christian, whatever, um, that you put yourself into the story the very best that you can. Doesn't mean you're, you're having anxiety attacks because you're picturing yourself, um, being destroyed in a persecution, but try to get into the field of what's happening in this story. We have problems. This happens so, so fast. I was having a conversation with someone recently, and there was two historical events that they just like kind of jumped over. They said, they were talking about World War II, and they said the Holocaust, and they just kept moving. And then there was, uh, they, they talked about 9-11, and it just like just, just kept moving. And first of all, 9-11, like, I was in college when 9-11 happened. If you don't want, know what I'm talking about, shame on you, but you can look it up, I guess. Um, but this was incredible. This is an incredible thing that happened. Over 3,000 Americans died. Um, and you would think that even talking about this, there'd be some reverence of just like, 
you know, quiet and calm and, and not just like, and then there was this, and then there was this, and then there was this. Um, and then also the Holocaust, oh, oh my goodness, like we, we, we forget about this. We forget about, there was over 6 million Jews, um, people that were considered handicapped and uh, people that were just not on Hitler's great list, okay, um, were killed in, in horrible, horrible ways. And when it comes to history, the only way that we can we can um, really understand history is really allow ourselves to be put into the position of, of these people, whether it be the perpetrators or those who are victimized, so that we can understand what's happening. Hopefully that makes sense for you. All right, so really, I guess there's two characters, really. There's, there's uh, a Nero that I want to talk about, and there is also... Tacticus, all right, Tacticus. Um, and the reason I want to talk about Tacticus is that uh, he is in a historian out of this time that's writing about what's happening. So it's back, you know, he's backing up I'm, what I'm saying is a first um, hand um, understanding of what's going on. And actually, Tacticus, what he is doing is he actually starts talking about Jesus and Pontius Pilate killing Jesus, and 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 you know those of you who are wondering, well, is there any evidence for a Jesus that even existed outside of the Bible? Um, Tacticus is one of those historians that tells us what's going on. So we're going to tell the story. We're going to see how we're going to learn about Nero. We're going to learn what he did to the Christians, and we're going to use Tacticus as a the main resource for what I'm talking about. Other books as well, but let's look at him and what he said. So let's get down to it. So Nero, um, because of his mom, and we have seen other characters, actually Augustine, Augustine's mom was very, very important. Um, ancient, we have a lot of ancient um, characters that have been influenced by their moms, okay? So that's uh, what it is, all right? So um, thanks to his mom, um, Nero reached the throne of being the emperor in October of 54. Isn't that kind of funny? We have 2022 is the date we live in or the year we live in. And when when was uh, when was Nero? When did he take the throne? 54. <laughs> so it's just the interesting thing is just like we're just starting. Obviously, time did not start uh, 54 years from then, but there was a shift that took place um, that we look at now. So this is kind of interesting, mind blowing. So at that time, Nero would not have said that he is um, that he is is taking the throne in 54, but history would say that based on the change in, in the resetting of time, um, based on the church. So, but we'll just say that he took the throne in 54, and at first, um, Nero was not a psychotic, crazy person. Instead, I shouldn't say psychotic, uh, although mental illness, we think that might have been something that was going on with Nero, but I don't want to be light with mental illness or make light of it or anything like that, even as I'm talking about Nero, but... As he came into being the emperor, people really liked him. He was actually, we don't think about it like this many times if you think about Nero, but people actually really dug him. They they loved how he, um, some of the laws that he put in place, and, and, and what was crazy is he actually put a lot of laws in place that protected what he would be, what we would call the minorities within the empire, which would have included the Christians, at least religiously, they were the minority, all right, a minority. So he, um, he, he protected them, but then very quickly what happened was he became infatuated with dreams of grandeur that he had and a lust for pleasure 
And he, this is kind of what he is known for. So he takes the throne. He 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 puts things in place. People are like, I, yeah, I like this guy. Um, great, fifty four. Uh, AD, what a great year, even though we're not calling it that yet for a couple hundred years, but what a great year, 54, this guy takes the throne, thanks to mom, and he does some really great things, but then all of a sudden, we know from writings and his writings and other writings and, and uh, historians say that he became infatuated with himself and with the things he uh, wanted, so Nero was uh, incredibly, um, he just tied to these dreams. It's almost like he realized the ultimate power that he had, and he did have it. He was the most powerful individual in the world at this time. Think about that. There's not a world leader that is around right now that, as far as power, complete power, that has the kind of power that Nero did. And it seems as though he realized that. There was a realization of that. And he started to have these dreams of grandeur that he wanted to make reality. Um, and, and his lust, we know he became an extremely sexually, sexually driven um, leader. He would have many, 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 many partners, both uh, men and, and women, and he would have all these. I won't get into the graphic details because it's not really necessary, but you like you can picture he was just out of control. Any type of sexual um, release that he could get or any kind of temptation he would run after and he would achieve. Um, so that's what he would do. And as he did that, he started clearing his court, the people that were his advisors. He started kicking them out, and he surrounded himself with a court where all all these people kind of satisfied everything he he wanted and of course he would do this um, we see this in in the roman culture from the time of their season their caesar um and then uh there's there's a there's a battle that takes place between uh mark anthony and octavian octavian becomes uh caesar augustus and and little by little as these as the power passes between individuals instead of uh, through a Republican process or a democratic process. Uh, Rome was a republic, as is the United States. So there would be limited kind of, uh, you know, the people getting involved. But after, through time, what happened was the emperor seized total power and everyone around them, whether it was a senate, sometimes the, the emperors would allow there to be a senate, sometimes they disbanded the senate. But no matter what, they all became advisors where the emperor could say, I don't want to do this or I do. So there's no accountability whatsoever. And he pushed out the um, advisors that he had because he wanted advisors who would do whatever he wanted them to do. And when he does crazy things, when he has crazy huge sex parties or all the different things that he wanted to do, um, then the uh, the advisors that he had would just say, yeah, that, that sounds great. Now, within, within Rome, there was this artisan uh, um, culture that kind of, actually, that leads into, there's always been an artisan culture throughout um, the Roman Empire and into the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages, and then into the nation states. European um, culture has always had this kind of artisan culture. And what I mean by that is not that it doesn't show up in any parts, any other parts of the world, but it can be defined as that because within, um, within culture, within the nation, within the empire, um, artisans were almost a particular class. What I mean by that is poets, musicians, actors, um, the arts was very, very important, almost like they had their own class. And what's interesting about that is in the United States, there's been a lot of papers and books written that we also have an arts 
class. So we have a complete class of people that we look at as entertainers and we give value to them and we give voice to them. Uh, have you ever seen at the Oscars, for example, an actor get an Oscar and then they get up and they make a political statement and that doesn't seem weird? Why does that not seem weird? Because we have also, whether we like it or not, know it or not, we also have a um, a, a class of poets. Now, in here in 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 the fifties here, <laughs> the fifties, not the nineteen fifties, but the actual fifties, um, when Nero is in charge, he wants so bad to be um, a poet and an actor. He wants he wants so badly for for that to be taking place. And what's interesting is. He's trying to do this, but the real poets, the real actors, real musicians, they, they, they look at him like he's not that good. They push him out. They kind of shun him, and it, it, it creates a rage inside of him, and it makes how he feels worse. It's almost like this is a community that's not bringing me in. Now, you know I don't like to make uh, connections to like very obvious, you know, historical figures, but I feel like I have to here. All right. So um, what we know about the life of Adolf Hitler, yes, I just dropped the Hitler. Um, what we know about the life of Adolf Hitler is that after after he kind of, before World War One, as he's kind of coming about and, and trying to find his ways, um, so 1910, 1907, 1910, what happens with Hitler is he really wants to be an artist. So he moves to Vienna from Austria, where he lived in Austria, and he moves to Vienna. And while he's in Vienna, he starts to, he wants to be, a, first of all, he wants to get into actually an academy of art. He's rejected a couple times. He's like, well, I'll still, I still want to be a part of this community so he would actually draw landscapes and he would go into beer halls which would be germans you know love their beer okay um <laughs> their craft beer and that kind of thing he would go into these places and he would literally pull out these these pictures and say are you would you like to buy this for 10 cents 20 cents 30 cents 40 cents what whatever the cost not really know. i'm just throwing out those numbers as far as the cost as far as the cost and that community rejected him and it always bothered him it created a rage within him i'm not saying that he um instigated the holocaust because he was rejected in his paintings but that was that's a connection here with nero where he fancied himself an artist hitler did and he was pushed away um, in fact, he utilized some of his art, even creating the Nazi flag, Nazi symbol, the, the coloring, um, all that kind of stuff. He utilized that, and, and there was almost like a rage back at those who, uh, who wouldn't let them be a part of his um, community. Um, now, wh now, what happens now with Nero is there are rumors that he's mad. All right, there's rumors that he's mad. So he's been uh, the emperor. He kind of did everything right. Then he became kind of literally excessive in everything that he wanted, um, took royalty and his power to the extreme, wanted to get in with the poets and the, the actors and the musicians. They didn't want him. Um, and then there starts to be this rumor that he's mad. We don't know exactly where this rumor starts. It could have been within his own people. It could have been a group of people that had, had no idea anything about Nero. They just had heard about him. But for some reason, this started catching on. And, and he kind of fed into that, not just with his... Um, he, we see that he's frustrated, but it's not just because of, it's, I mean, he feeds into it by what he continues to do. Um, now... 
here's probably the most important thing that we're going to talk about tonight. So basically, on June 18th, 64, <laughs> um, a fire broke out in Rome. All right, so during this time of Nero, and this is a very historical thing that has taken place. This is history at its at its most. They will talk about this for hundreds and hundreds of years as being key to history. It's like when we talk about the Civil War, who could even imagine um, talking about U.S. history without the Civil War? This fire was a huge, huge deal. And but. What we know is this, what we think is this, based on other historians, that Nero was several miles away from from the fire when it broke out um, in his palace at Antium. In his palace at Antium, he's hanging out, at least that's what we think. Um, And we also think, again, there's so much hearsay with this whole situation, that as soon as he heard the news, he he hurried back to Rome and he tried to organize a fight against the fire. So originally the, 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 the early reports is that the emperor is a couple miles away in a palace. Um, the fire breaks out in Rome, starts raging out of control. He, he flees back to Rome because his palace is kind of outside the city. He goes back to Rome. He starts gathering people, organizing them to fight um, the fire. It, it, some people even said that he opened his home and his gardens and his palace, multiple palace, um, and other public buildings to those people who were rushing out of the parts of the city that were on fire. Um, but in spite of this, there was this idea, and again, it's it's really hard to figure out such detail that I just told you, um, and then also such a completely different story that took place. And yes, I'm going to bring this back to Hitler and the Nazis. I don't want to do that again, but I literally have to when you see kind of what happens. Because in spite of this, there were those who suspected the actual emperor, Nero, um, and they believed that he ordered certain sections of the city to be put to Torch. So he actually said he ordered that um, parts of the city be burned. Isn't that so different than what um, some were saying? Some were saying he rushed there, he organized like a fire troop to basically take on this fire. But then little by little, there are, I say, details that people are bringing out that said that he had something to do with it, even to the point of ordering um, that. Uh, that that parts of the city be burned and the fire lasted for six days and seven nights so no small thing think of the Chicago fire if you know anything about that situation worth reading about sometimes a historical event in in American history that's forgotten about I'm giving an idea of kind of what was going on and then also the fire after it was put out, so to speak, or it died rather, it would it would uh, for three more days after that it would become it would kind of kind of uh, explode up, and you would have little fires that would that would take off. And in in the midst of this, ten of the fourteen sections of the city were destroyed. So this is big. All right, Rome was. Uh, we know we have ideas that there were cities and and, and uh, civilizations out into the east, way east, Chinese empires and stuff like that. There are big cities, but from what we know, this is the biggest city. This is like New York, and um, it'd be like boroughs of New York. It'd be like portions of New York. Let's say there are fourteen total, ten completely burned to the ground, um, and. And this is uh, this is a really big deal, and still, what seems to happen historically is um, 
the idea that Nero showed up to help starts fading away, and um, the idea that he helped um, get uh, helped, you know, come up with a plan to burn it down seems like that is what takes the history books. Now, what's hard about that is that is a more flamboyant story. Um, in fact, that along with that idea that he ordered some of it to be burnt down, kind of went along with. There was also this rumor that he had he had it burnt down so that he could um, build it the way he wanted to build it in the artistry that he wanted to rebuild the city. And these were, um, and these were the uh, the rumors that that were going around. And the people eventually kind of latched onto the fact that. Um, the emperor was the one that got this whole thing started. Um, this was the um, this is what circulated. In fact, one of the things that were uh, or was rather um, the the picture that kind of floated around. If you think about the picture that kind of embedded into people's minds was that Nero, being obsessed with being a um, a musician and a poet that actually as the city burned and this maybe if you know anything about this fire this is what um, people think of um, that he it's been depicted in art and stuff throughout the centuries that Nero wanting to be a musician and a poet was actually watching he's on the top of one of his palaces watching the city burn playing an instrument and dancing around in a in beautiful garments um, being inspired to write poetry and that is what the people latched onto. Now, it, now Nero did everything he could through let's call it propaganda or through facts, <laughs> regardless of kind of um, how people saw it at the time, to take the idea of him being the one that ordered these ten of the fourteen regions of the city to be burned, and he realized over time this was just not going to work. So. He utilized this and he looked and he said, what is something that can uh, be taken from this? And just, you can call it irony. I think it's kind of, you might struggle with saying this, how God put it together. Um, although we do know that that through persecution, the church does expand dramatically every time there's a persecution, which is about, re- is about ready to take place here from N- Nero. Nero realizes that out of the four, um, the four of the 14 districts that are not burned, there are many Christians and many Jewish people and many Jewish Christians that live in these four districts of the actual city. And he says, who can I blame this on? I have to blame it on someone else. And he decides primarily Jews and Christians actually says this, uh, um, this persecution won't just be Christians. A lot of times Christians want to talk about this persecution as if it's just Christians. It's not, but it's primarily Christians. So there's others that are persecuted, but um, Christians are going to be persecuted the most. So he decides to blame the fire on someone else, taking the blame off of himself, but it also sets up um, political a political chain of events that um, a lot of people die, and eventually he will lose his life too. All right, so I said I was going to connect this to Hitler and the Nazis. The only kind of connection I have is not completely uh, all illustrations like this do kind of drop off at some point. But it is interesting that the Reichstag, 
should say, the Reichstag. So once Hitler comes back from World War One, he has uh, he gets involved in the German German Workers Party, um, takes prominence. They realize he's a great communicator, organizer. He changes that party to the Nazi Party, gives them a flag, gives them identity. It grows um, uh, tremendously, and then what happens is uh, Hitler actually tries to take power. And it doesn't work. He tries to take a, you know, himself and armed uh, people in his party, um, try, try to take the government, doesn't work. He goes to prison for what would seem a very short amount of time, given he tried to take over the government. While he's in prison, um, he writes Mein Kampf which is German for my struggle. Um, he gets out of prison, immediately jumps back in and decides instead of taking the, the German government by storm, which did not work, probably won't work, he decides to use democratic means. Um, he is voted into um, into a position of, of of leadership and Nazis start to take many seats in the Reichstag, which is which is basically like a, a Senate or a Congress, rather, in the United States. So they start gaining power as a party. Um, and because of the power that Hitler has, the influence Hitler has, the president at that time is Hindenburg. That is his last name, Hindenburg. And he was a general that was well-respected from World War One, And he dies, and Hitler takes uh, – he, he takes uh, – um, he declares himself uh, a dictator, basically, um, unlimited um, power roles, and uh, the Reichstag kind of gets behind him, obviously. But during this time, there's a fire that causes the Reichstag to burn down, not with, not with the people in it, not with the leaders in it, but the, the building that had so much um, influence and, and was seen as like the center of German power. It, it, it burns the ground. And Hitler, um, there's all kinds of ideas. Well, did the Nazis burn it down? Did, did Hitler have anything to do with it? He immediately um, focuses on blaming the communists and Jewish, the Jewish communists as well. And and he uses this to begin to jail people, put people away, and get rid of the uh, um, the opposing party. So not exactly the same, but it is a situation where a high-level leader looks at a disaster, uses a disaster as a stepping stone to give more power to himself, and realizes that he has to blame someone. There's a scapegoat. And historically, um, whether it's our, our own country, this might be controversial to say, European countries, countries um, like Japan and, and, and China, Russia, all over the place, South American countries, um, countries tend to demonize groups of people. And whether it's they tend to be groups of people that the general population see, seems um, they see less of compared to themselves. Um, because a lot of things happen historically to uh, civilizations. And a lot of times it makes sense of that instead of saying, well, that was just by chance or to deflect um, the responsibility that the ruling class has. Um, there's usually a scapegoat, a group of people who are um, blamed, and I could literally write a book about, about how many times this has happened in history, and we have to be very careful of that. And we see here the Christians, the Jewish Christians, the Jews, the, and the Jews and the Christians, the Jewish Christians, primarily the Christians, those who call Jesus their Lord and who will die based on the belief that Jesus rose from the dead. They are the scapegoats for Nero. And remember, I said Tacitus. Um, Tacitus is a uh, historian that we're going to read um, because he kind of picks up the story here and it's good to just have firsthand. So let me read what he says. So this is 
Tatticus just, um, I'm saying it like five different ways. I'm sorry. Um, Tatticus is, is how we're going to stick to it. Okay. So it's, a, it's actually T-A-C-I-T-U-S. So you can maybe correct me and email me and make fun of me for, for that. And I don't know what's going on. But anyway, this is what he says. Tatticus, he says, in spite of every human effort of the emperor's, um, of the emperor's try, and of the sacrifices made to the gods, nothing sufficed to ally suspicion nor to destroy the opinion that the fire had been ordered right, by, by Nero. Therefore, in order to destroy this rumor, Nero blamed the Christians who are hated for their abominations and punished them with refined cruelty. So this is not a Christian writer. This is a Roman historian writing. And he says they're already hated. So they were an easy scapegoat. So Nero said, you know what? They would be the best to go after. And why are they? And he's going to... Um He's going to say this, Christ, all right, Christ right here, um, Tatticus, he is, he is right. He's going to write about what they believe. And in my opinion, he's going to authenticate um, a historical Jesus as well, unless he was super out to lunch. But he is not a Christian supporter. He is a hater himself. We're going to see this. Tatticus is, is a hater of Christians, but he's going to, in his hate, um, you know, 2,000 years later, we can look back and say, yeah, he kind of, he hated these guys, but he also helped the case so christ from whom they take their name and he's he's, here's comes the gospel literally was executed by pontius pilate during the reign of tiberius stopped for a moment this evil superstition reappeared not only in judea where it was the root of evil but also in rome where all things sordid and abominable from every corner of the world come together nice so so what he's saying is there's a group of people um, they believed that Jesus, who who was killed by Pontius Pilate, they make claims about him being God. Clearly, which um, is there is a, uh, and it, we can it, basically we can take from that that they were proclaimed the gospel that Jesus died and rose again. And Tatticus is saying for for a while uh, they were stopped. It was stopped, and that was actually from a per- former persecution that we're not talking about today. And then they came back, you know, and they came back, and he said, and not only did they come back, they ended up here in Rome, where all the rabble, all the garbage, all of the weird, crazy ideas show up. Is basically what he says. He says, thus first those who confessed that they were Christians were arrested. What is happening here? Nero is making this happen. And on the basis of their testimony, a great number were condemned, although not so much for the fire itself as for the hatred of humankind. All right. So what has evolved here is Nero looking at the Christians and saying, they're a scapegoat and they started the fire. Um, (laughs) I keep thinking of the Billy Joel song, Who Started the Fire? So stupid and and not appropriate for this portion of the podcast. But maybe I should, at the end of the podcast, I should say, all right, everybody have a great night. Great night. And we should have, uh, um, you know, that uh, Who Started the Fire, Marilyn Monroe. You know, you know that song. Um, if you don't know it from actually hearing it, it was on that that uh, Office, the Office episode where Ryan starts the fire by putting a... Uh, I think it's a, um, is it a cheese sandwich in the uh, toaster? And, and Dwight comes down, hold it up, and he starts singing this, Ryan started the fire, if you remember that. But where was I? Oh, my word. Okay, so 
What we see from these these words is basically that um, the Christians went from being accused of starting fires to hating all humanity, which is <laughs> a, a big big jump in my, in my opinion. Okay. Um, now these words from Tatticus are they're of like huge value. Um, because they give us a, a view into how pagans, meaning non-Christians, viewed um, Christians. Um, and we see, reading these lines, it's clear that Tatticus uh, did not believe that the fire was set by Christians. Okay, Even he didn't believe that. Um, he did not approve of what Nero was doing because he uses this line of refined cruelty, which is a language that would have been in Latin here. It's, it's basically a mockery of you're going way, way too far. Um, but all that said, we saw this change to, um, you know, there was a hatred of, of, of Christians because they had a hatred of mankind. Um, now, what happens is Tatticus goes, goes on to, to talk about this these haters of mankind, which is so crazy because so, so Christians, can you imagine being a Christian in one of these districts and you're a minority and, and Nero just decides to blame this on you, even though even his historians are saying, yeah, this probably was not the Christians. Somehow people latch onto that so quickly that they exaggerate it into, you know, the Christians hate humanity. And this is what Tacus, he goes on and says, before killing the Christians, Nero used them to amuse the people. So this gets more twisted and twisted. Some were dressed in furs to be killed by dogs. Others were crucified. Still others were set on fire early in the night so that they may illuminate it, illuminate the night. So many of them killed it. It almost seemed like day. Um, Nero opened his own guardians for, or gardens for these shows. And in the circus, he himself became a spectacle for he mingled with the people dressed as a charioteer, okay? Or he rode around in his chariot is kind of what that meant. All of this aroused the mercy of the people, even against these culprits who deserved an explanatory punishment. For it was clear that they were not being destroyed for a common good, but rather to satisfy the cruelty of one person. Now, this is interesting, okay? So this is the same passage to Atticus' writing, but he says that the Christians are taken from being accused of starting the fire by Nero to being labeled haters of humanity, um, and people agree with that, so they jump on board with that. But then eventually what happens is the cruelty, um, as Tatticus says, that refined um, the cruelty to an extreme extent what takes place is even the people of rome begin to say this is a bit much this is a bit much um christians being lit on fire to to for nero's gardens and on display their place in the city um them being eaten by dogs and being crucified this is a bit much all right and uh, apparently killing them was fine because they started the fire um but this um, this is this is a bit too much, because uh, again, what we see is this is historian. Uh, historian, um, uh, he's a pagan. And he has no love for Christians, but he's also saying he's sympathetic to the extreme suffering of these of these Christians. Um, 
Now, we, we don't know exactly how many Christians were killed. We do know that, or church history tells us, and I, I do believe this based on what I've read, that there were two extremely important um, Christian figures from the Bible. Remember, this is 64 AD. This isn't that far off of... Um, off of Jesus, only about 30 years or so from Jesus dying on the cross and going to heaven, uh, raised from the dead and going to heaven. There's still apostles and characters from the Bible that are living in this time. We're not talking about into Augustine. We're not talking in, I mean, we're talking into the times of popes. We're talking now, this is the same empire that Jesus lived in. I mean, um, at this point, uh, Jerusalem hasn't even fallen yet. Okay, um, so we know that probably Peter, both Peter, the, the Peter from the New Testament, and Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, um, is believed that they were both killed in this persecution. So that's significant, okay, that Paul and Peter were killed in this um, persecution. So crazy huge uh, church church fathers. And just to show you how close this, um, this happened. Uh, now, in... in 68 um, AD or CE, however you want to say it. Um, in 68, what we see is that uh, eventually people around Nero, um, they depose him. They depose him, and he's he's no longer in power. So one of the things that's, that's, that's interesting about this is that, let's see, was it 64 that the, that the fire happened? Let me see here. Um yeah, 64, June 8th, uh, 64 AD, CE, whatever. Um, this fire was born, this fire happened. So all this persecution happened within those four years. This is four years of intense persecution. It's not something that happened for 15, 20, 30 years. And what we'll actually find in um, the emperors, if we talk about another persecution, which we probably will at some point, not right away. I won't have persecution, persecution, persecution right after each other. But what we'll find is, that the persecutions that happen are not necessarily super long. They go for the reign of the emperor, and then they, they dissipate. In fact, what happens here is kind of interesting. Um, it seems the people followed what Nero wanted to do. They were not necessarily excited about continuing his laws. So after he's disposed, um, we see in when that happened actually in, in 68 AD CE, uh, shortly after he's deposed, um, we see that uh, um, Nero actually killed himself. There's some records that someone else killed him, but you know most historians say he, he actually killed himself. So once he was done, four years after the fire, um, the laws that he had put in place that led to the ability for him to uh, completely persecute these Christians and they legitimized the cruelty of what he did, they didn't change. This is what's interesting. They didn't change, but they kind of like faded where people no longer followed those laws. So they were like on the books, um, but nobody really followed those laws. Um, and right after Nero, there was an extreme, uh, let's call it political um, uh, in, in, infighting. Actually, uh, this is uh, in, in, uh, in the year 69, so the very next year, this is called the year of the four emperors. And that's because it was rapid fire. Hear me snapping. <laughs> it was rapid fire of four different emperors, and they all thought they, they got the, the throne. So Nero basically, um, the whole constitutional setup, um, or not constitutional setup, the, 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 what, what was in place as steady government, even though there's one person in charge, he 
kind of dismantled that for a while. It took time um, to figure that out. The, so we have 64 of the fire, 68. Um, he is deposed, 68, he kills himself. And then we have in 69, the year of the four emperors. And eventually Vespasian, um, he gained control of the government. Um, and during his reign and that of uh, Titus, uh, which is his son, we have this kind of like passed down to son that actually starts a new um, dynasty, okay, new dynasty after Caesar's dynasty. Um, a new dynasty kind of starts with Vestasian and, and then also his son Titus, um, who has inter interactions with um, with Israel that we can't get into tonight, um, were generally, it, like those things that were put in place by Nero were generally ignored or they were closed out. And that was the close of that um, persecution. So a couple things. Um, first, uh, I, I think it's important for us to understand not just that there were persecutions, but where they were rooted and what what became of that. And the reason for that is that history does repeat itself. I used a couple examples of Hitler and the Nazis, um, and things get out of control. So obviously Hitler takes control. Um, he becomes the dictator. And the scapegoat of why World War II was a bust, um, why, you know, uh, wealth was not distributed around the country, all different types of things. And Hitler makes up most of those things in his party, and it gets out of control to the point where you have the Holocaust. And then you have at the end of World War II, after the Allies close in and take over Germany, we have Germans walking through concentration camps just appalled by what their government did. All right. Is there a government, but there's kind of like, oh, well, you, you know, you, you could have stepped in a little bit too. And that's a whole nother discussion. But the whole idea that I'm coming at with you is that when atrocities happen, whether it's with Christians or other groups, they're all horrible. They're all bad. Um, they come from something. They just don't appear. They're not just like, you know, like an asteroid out of space and just boom, a bunch of people die. Um, it's not like an event, like a tidal wave or something like that. It's human beings develop these um, thoughts about other groups, and then that's what comes out, and that lays this, the groundwork for persecution, all right? So the people already hated the Christians. That didn't begin um, with Nero. In fact, he, there's no way he could have, on his own, convinced all of the people of Rome just in his short time at the helm as emperor to hate a whole group of people. That was building up over the course of time. Not a lot of time, like I said, uh, it was only, what, 30, 40 years that, that Christianity kind of spread and, and, and got into the the mindset of, of the public, but people hated them already. So understanding where uh, persecutions come from, that is very, very important. And, and I will have to say that we have to be careful um, to love our neighbor, as Jesus said, to love those who are different from us, to love the minority, to love the, the widow and the orphan is what the Bible says. So James actually says that is what true religion is, um, to, uh, the, the, to, to love I'm the widow and the orphan and the poor. Jesus always talks about the poor. And we can't have these mindsets of people. And when people demonize groups of people, um, that becomes a, a problem. And we see this in our politics. I might get beat up on this, but 
there was a, a there was I don't know it was a press conference or rally or whatever um, where then candidate Donald Trump um, talked about people coming from Mexico and said they're not bringing their best they're bringing their rapist and they you know whatever the language was you can look up the quote I understand to the extent that. Um, you know, as we bring people into our country, we want them to contribute. We want them to get into our educational system and all that kind of stuff. But as a Christian, those kind of comments should make us go, eh, uh, not cool, not cool. And why is that not cool? Because we are always looking out for, let's call them the underdogs, the people who are trying to bust into a society and, and, and assume that they're not trying to take it over, but assume that we have responsibility to love them. Okay, so that's a big one, just said a lot of stuff. So know where the persecutions come from um, and know how Nero's get into place and know that it's very much not usually about a leader as much as it is about a national mindset. Um, agree or disagree, you can email me at church.ahistory at gmail.com. Number two, number two is we cannot forget that this is a, I actually said there was a, a persecution before this. I think there there wasn't. I think this might have been the first one. I got to read on I don't know why I don't know, don't know that, but um, this was very early on. So I think this might have been the first persecution of the Christians. We can't, uh, we can't move out of this time without talking about the bravery of the Christians, the bravery of the Christians. Now, this is true that... Um, persecution, Christians being killed, you know, uh, fed to lions and crucified and sawn into and, and all this stuff. Actually, the Bible talks a little bit about that as well. Um, the New Testament about how that's happening. They committed faithfully to the fact that Jesus, the gospel was that Jesus died and rose from the dead. That's that's what it was. Okay, that's what it was. We've talked about on this podcast that um, we're t- like hundreds of years um, after Jesus at- lived and walked and rose from the dead, and after the apostles have died, like hundreds of years, they're still trying to f- trying to figure out how you know how do we say God? He's all God and all man, and and what do we what do we do with these different manuscripts and mush them together? And, and God help us figure that out. And uh, what do we do? What's church polity? And that's a fancy word for like you know what are the rules? How do we do church? What is what does this mean? And this is as a Christian um, and as a skeptic and as anybody who's kind of concerned about this stuff, um, you need to understand that the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus rose from the dead, and no one has ever done this before. And people laid down their lives. I mean, remember what Tacticus, Tacticus, Tacticus said. He said uh, he said that people were being burnt alive on, like, he didn't say this, but like on, on poles, and, and they were lighting gardens as they were being burnt in the screams. And can, can you imagine? Come on. Um, and, and, and they were being killed, eaten by dogs. What does that even mean? I don't even know what that means, but it sounds awfully terrible. And to think that all they had to do to stop this madness is just say, no, I'm not a Christian. Um, I, I, uh, I, I renounce the name of Jesus. I don't believe he died and rose from the dead. Because here's the thing. I have used examples of uh, Jews, Jews in, in World War II. I've used the example of, we know from the writing that we looked at, that there are, there, there are Jewish people and Christians that were in those four um, districts. And man, every time I say it, I feel kind of like I'm talking about Hunger Games, and I hate Hunger Games. But anyway, in those four districts, we know that there were Jews and Christians. But but what? I, but by and large, this was not a race issue. 
all right? This was not a race issue because the Christians, many of the Christians in Rome would have been Roman, all right? Um, so it is, it, it's not a, um, it's not a, a race thing. It is a, it's a Christian thing. And why I say that is because if you are a certain race, you can deny you're that race, but there may be physical characteristics and stuff that give you away. Um, but if you're a Christian, you can literally say, I, I don't believe this anymore. And how, um, if you have questions or you think about how do we know the resurrection is even a real thing? How is that even possible? Um, I think that there's a lot of questions that are valid, but I think a question that you have to ask if you're a skeptic is, why in the world would so many Christians allow their bodies to be ripped apart if they weren't sure about Jesus raising from the dead? So that's all we're talking about tonight. Nero, super excited, encouraging stuff about a persecution, all that stuff. Um, but I want to encourage you again to be um, thinking through things, think through things deeply. And here at the Church History Podcast, we like to look at one historical event, a person, figure, or event, and, and how that it, it kind of moves with, with Scripture. So so tonight, I hope, maybe whatever time you're listening to, I hope you're encouraged, and I hope you learned a lot, and I will see you next month. Mm-hmm.